The following content is provided under a Creative Commons license. Your support will help MIT OpenCourseWare continue to offer high-quality educational resources for free. To make a donation or view additional materials from hundreds of MIT courses, visit MIT OpenCourseWare at ocw.mit.edu. All right, so welcome to uh, Systems Biology. There are many different uh, numbers uh, that you might have uh, signed up for this class through. Um, my name is Jeff Gore. I'm an assistant professor in the physics department. And, um, and I think that this is really, uh, it's a fun class to teach. I hope that, uh, that those of you that stick around uh, for the rest of the semester find that it's a fun class to take as well. Um, all right, so I, I just want to give a little bit of an introduction of uh, for the kind of teaching staff, and then, and then we'll uh, go over some administrative details before um, most of, most of uh, today what we'll do is we'll basically just uh, spend an hour kind of, I'll give you a flash summary of, uh, of the course. And, uh, and then you'll have a sense of the kinds of ideas we'll be exploring. All right, OK, so what, so what, what is this thing, systems biology, right? So it's, uh, I would say, ill-defined. Uh, but in general, we have this idea that uh, in many cases, the really exciting functions that we see in biology are arising from uh, the interactions at a lower level of relatively simple components. So the kinds of behavior that we'd like to, we'd like to understand are uh, kind of nicely encapsulated in this, uh, in this video of a neutrophil uh, chasing a bacterium. And if I can, if my computer is actually doing something, then, all right. OK, there's a, all right, so this is a classic, uh, a classic video that many of you guys might have seen uh, over the years. Um, Right, so yeah, so this, is, uh, this was taken in the 1950s. Uh, it's, uh, as I said, a neutrophil, which is um, part of your innate immune system. So sort of the first line of defense. If you get a bacterial infection, for example, uh, this, uh, this white blood cell uh, is going to kind of chase the bacterium and, um, and eat it up before it can divide and, and harm you. All right, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play that over again because it's, um, it's pretty cool. Uh, all right, so the, the, the features that you want to try to pay attention to, all right, so this is uh, it's a single cell that somehow is able to track this bacterial invader. Right? It's using chemical cues in order to kind of figure out where it is that bacterial cell is going. It's able to kind of disregard these red blood cells that are kind of in its way, push them aside, change direction before it eventually captures this bacterial cell. Right? Uh, so all of these are kind of striking, amazing information processing capabilities where that information has to be coupled not only to some sort of decision making within that cell, but also has to be kind of transduced into these mechanical forces and motions that allow that cell to, to capture the bacterial cell. Okay, so let's uh, let's try it again. Okay, so here it is. You can see, all right, the bacterial cell is here. All right, so it's it's ignoring this other cell, kind of keeping focused on this one, pushing aside the red blood cells, so it can kind of follow it along. Every now and then, okay, you know, now the the cell changed direction, but uh, Eventually, you can see it catches up to the bacterial cell uh, and eats it. Now um, you're not going to um, you're not going to get sick from that infection. Okay, so th so that's that's an example of the kinds of kind of remarkable behavior that um, that can be implemented even just at by a single cell, right? So we know that you know as you know as humans we have we have brains with ten to the twelve neurons or so. All right, so maybe you say, oh, well, it's not surprising that we can do fancy things. Right? What's remarkable is that even at the level of an individual cell. Uh, it's possible to implement uh, rather sophisticated uh, kind of information processing uh, capabilities. All right, so this is uh, the kind of thing that we'd like to be able to say something about uh, by the end of the class. Uh, many of you, I think, probably read the course description. Uh, and this gives you a sense of the kinds of topics that we're going to be covering uh, over the course of the semester. I'm not going to uh, read it to you. But uh, one thing I want to stress is uh, you know, I, I brought up you know, this general idea of systems biology. How is it that function arises from interactions of of smaller, simpler parts. Right? And I, I think it's, it's very important uh, right at the beginning to, uh, to be clear that there are really, uh, I'd say, two distinct communities that sort of self-identify as uh, studying systems biology. And, um, and they're kind of to, to simplify a bit, what I would say is that basically there, there's the, the physics or physics-inspired community where, uh, you know, and I'm in the physics department, so that's, that's kind of where I fall and where this class is going to be. Right? So it's, it's really trying to use uh, some uh, kind of simple models from say nonlinear dynamics or stochastic processes, uh, combined with quantitative experiments, often on single cells, in order to try to uh, in order to try to illuminate how um, this cellular decision making process kind of works. Okay, 
And, uh, and over the next hour, you'll kind of see, get a flavor of what I mean by this. Now, th there's another branch of systems biology that is also, um, well, that's also very exciting and that many, you know, many of you may want to learn more about in the future. And maybe some of you are even were thinking that this is what the class was going to be. And all, but I'll, let me explain what it is. So it's, this other branch, I'd say, is, is more influenced by uh, computer scientists and engineers where uh, what they're really trying to do is use uh, complex models, maybe machine learning techniques and so forth, in order to extract signal from large data sets. And uh, this is uh, also, again, systems biology in the, you know, because it is trying to understand how uh, the global properties of the cell result from all these interactions. But it's uh, a rather different, uh, I'd say, aesthetic take on the subject. And, um, and indeed, uh, much of the activity that uh, one would be doing here is, is different from um, sort of the more physics branch of systems biology. Okay? So uh, if what you were looking for was more of this uh, large data set, kind of high throughput branch of systems biology, then uh, you, you may not be at the right place. Um, but uh, and if there's an interesting fact, which is that uh, if you decide that you want this other branch of systems biology, then very conveniently, uh, you actually have space in your schedule. Because um, Manola Kellis is uh, teaching uh, a, a class in computational biology. This is really this other branch of systems biology um, at the same time. All right, so uh, if you think you're at the wrong place, you, um, you're welcome to just kind of like sneak out now um, go to over to 32141, and I'm sure that he will he will welcome you, and um, and you know no hard feelings. Okay. Um, similarly, uh, in the spring, there's another computational biology class that some of you uh, some of you may be thinking about, and this is um, taught by Chris Burge uh, and company, uh, and also I'd say maybe this more of this other branch of systems biology. Uh, and finally, once again, in the spring, there's a class uh, quantitative biology for graduate students that I um, that I'd say probably assumes. Uh, somewhat less mathematical background. All right, so if um, after kind of looking at the syllabus or maybe even getting started looking at the first problem set, if you think that maybe this, uh, this class is expecting too much, then you may want to consider taking quantitative biology in the spring and maybe taking systems biology this class uh, next fall. Right. Um, and so on, uh, on, on that note, I, I want to say something about the prerequisites. So um, the, the major challenge with this class, uh, certainly teaching it from my standpoint, I think for many of you taking it, is that um, there's a wide range of different backgrounds. All right, so we can maybe get a sense of that now. Um, just kind of show of hands, how many of you are undergraduates? All right, so we've got a solid third or so, right? Um, how many are uh, maybe um, you know, mixing together undergrad graduate, but how many of you are in the physics department at one level or another? All right, so we have maybe again a third. All right, biology department. Okay, so we have a quarter, a fifth. All right, uh, I don't know, engineers. All right, so a, a substantial fraction of, of engineers um, and uh, or chemists. So I, we, all right, we've got a few of them. Mathematicians. All right, we've got one. All right, all right. So if you did not raise your hand, um, what, wh wh where, where are you, where are you based, physically, intellectually, something? Any? Or did we get everybody? All right. Um, okay. So right. So you can see there's a really broad range of different backgrounds, and um, and what that means uh, in a concrete way for us is that. Um, I, you know, I will very much try to avoid using unnecessary jargon or um, unnecessary mathematics. I think that uh, mathematics is a wonderful thing, uh, but in some cases it, uh, I think, obscures as much as it illuminates. Uh, so for me, I, I very much try to focus on uh, conceptual understanding, and uh, on top of that, I try to build, well, you know, we like math too, right? But, um, but I think that it's, it's, it's very important to be able to, for example, plot your solution. Okay? So after, after you derive some fancy equation describing something, you should know whether that thing goes up or down as a function of something or another. And I, I think it's very easy to kind of lose sight of these basic aspects when we kind of get uh, too, uh, kind of too deep into the mathematical equations. Okay? All right, but that being said, uh, we do, I'd say, expect something. Uh, not necessarily full. You, know, you don't have to have taken the full class 7012, but I'd at least a solid high school class of biology. If, you, uh, if it's been more than 10 years since you took a biology class, you might want to take one before coming here. Uh, you could, in principle, catch up, but you know, like all things. Um, we also assume uh, some comfort with, uh, with differential equations and probability. All right, so we've actually added uh, those as prerequisites, uh, particularly uh, kind of from the standpoint of an undergraduate, uh, to give you a kind of a sense of uh, the, the sort of material that we, we expect you to be comfortable with. So we will not be defining probability distributions uh, so much. We will assume that you can calculate means and standard deviations of discrete, continuous um, distributions, and so forth. Okay? Uh, 
And the other thing that is going to be important is that uh, a major, I think, goal of the class is to uh, increase your comfort level with uh, using kind of computational techniques to analyze some of these problems. So every week, uh, we're going to have a problem set. And on every problem set, there will be uh, at least one problem where you have to use some computational package in order to uh, calculate something. So you do a simulation to understand the stochastic dynamics of this or that, or maybe you're going to integrate some differential equations. Right? And um, in, in this case, you can use whatever package you like. Right? So if you are a MATLAB person, that's fine. Mathematica is fine. Uh, the officially supported kind of um, language is going to be Python, because that's what uh, Saurabh you know, Saurabh, you know, if he's going to be spending hours helping you with your code, you know, he, he wants it to be something that he's comfortable with. So, um, so that's going to be uh, what we might call the official language in the sense that he will perhaps uh, provide some sample code and so forth to get you started. But, uh, but you're welcome to use anything that you want. Okay. All right. And that, that being said, we will have a Python tutorial almost certainly on Monday. We're waiting to, get, uh, to find out what the classroom is going to be. But we will send out a notice to the, um, to the class about that. Okay. Um, and, and as, as well as instructions on how to get Python on your computer. Okay. Um, are there any questions about where we are um, kind of so far, what we've said, expectations, prerequisites? No. All right. Um, OK, so grading. You know, so um, one of the things that we have to do is we have to grade. Uh, I'd say that uh, our goal is very much to help you learn material that we're excited about. Right, so I, I am not in any way trying to grade in any, in any mean way. And, and, and what that means is that uh, we, we also just don't want you guys to feel like you're competing against each other. Right? So uh, what that means is that um, all right, so this is, these are the grade cutoffs. Okay? So they will not, the, the numbers will not go up from here. If I screw up and I make some really hard exam or so, then it, I, you know, I reserve the right to, to lower these numbers. But, but basically, this is, this is uh, what's worked for the last several years. All right? so, um, so you should feel comfortable uh, collaborating uh, with your friends to study, to try to figure out the material, um, because your grade is just going to be determined by uh, where things end up on, on this chart, basically. right? Uh, and the, the, the course grade is going to be split, as you can kind of see. There's a fair component on, on problem sets, uh, and that's because the problem sets are um, they're going to be hard work. Right? We're going to have problem sets every week, um, and you can expect to spend a significant amount of time on them. Um, and the kind of uh, thing that you learn in, for example, doing these computational problems is somewhat different from uh, what you learn and what you can demonstrate on an exam. Right? So that, that's why uh, it's not all just kind of an exam grade. Uh, I'm going to say something more about these pre-class reading questions. Uh, there are going to be uh, two midterms and an exam. Uh, the dates are on your, uh, on your syllabus. So please mark, uh, mark these uh, evenings on your calendar. Okay. Um, all right, OK, so the problem sets, I mean, you can read about this. but. Uh, Right. Basically, uh, every, uh, every Friday, 7 o'clock, they're going to be due. Uh, a box uh, out the, between the third floor of building 6 and the fourth floor of building 16, I suppose. The, these are the physics homework boxes. All right. So, um, right, so the idea is that we, we'd like you to have a weekend to catch up and start reading for the next week. All right, so uh, that's why they're due just before dinner on Friday. That being said, uh, you know, we understand that sometimes there are a lot of problem sets, or sometimes you're um, overwhelmed with something else, so that's fine. You can turn it in for 80% credit till Monday morning at 10 a.m. when we're going to post the solutions. Okay. All right, so uh, we won't be accepting solution, uh, we won't be accepting problem sets after that uh, unless you get um, agreement from Saurabh in advance. Okay. All right. Um, okay, so pre-class reading questions. So this, I'd say this is a, a, a key part of the class. It's only 5% of the grade. And it's graded really only on participation that you've done it. Right? But this is a, an essential element of what we um, like to call a flipped classroom. Okay, so today's class is going to be rather different from, uh, from the rest of the semester in that uh, today is more like a lecture, I would say. Uh, whereas the rest uh, of the semester, uh, there will not be any PowerPoint slides. And, um, and it will be very much uh, kind of, I hope, very interactive. Uh, in order to facilitate that, there are a number of different elements. One is that uh, we do require reading uh, before, before class. And the way that we uh, encourage you to do the reading is that uh, we ask you to answer questions uh, the night before. Okay? So what, uh, what you're going to do is, um, is you'll, by 10 PM the night before, just three questions, just a couple sentences each question. It's not that you're supposed to have to do a lot of work. It's just that if you did the reading, you should be able to give your take on it and you think about it a little bit. Uh, and then uh, Andrew will, uh, will go over this, um, the submitted answers and will uh, send out his, his favorite answers among the group. So uh, your answer will occasionally be, uh, be represented there if you uh, say something that's reasonable. Okay? Um, 
Now, th th I think this is, um, it's really important to have done this reading, uh, th thought about the material some before, because the idea is that in class we would really like to engage in uh, what you might call some higher level learning. All right? So it's not just um, this idea that, I mean, the, the traditional lecture, right, it arose when books were very expensive. Right? So if you're at a university in the 13th century, um, you don't have a textbook. So what you need is for me to stand up front and read to you. Right? Um, and that's fine, except that it's better for you to read it. And you can read it outside of class, think about it a bit. And then that means when you come to class, we can actually discuss it. Right? And uh, in particular, I'll give you my take on, uh, on the material, uh, what the kind of uh, the research that I'm excited about in, uh, in the area that's been published recently. And uh, we'll also try to get you involved via uh, these concept questions. So uh, in uh, future sessions, we'll have uh, fl these flashcards or these uh, colored cards. So we can, uh, we can ask kind of these conceptual uh, questions, you know, A, B, C, D. You know, if you drop an apple, does it go up, down, left, right? Okay. You know, and then you guys get to vote. Right? And then uh, after, after the vote, we will often have you pair up. And, uh, and the goal there is that you're trying to convince your neighbor that you're right. Okay? And after that, you might expand into fours or so. But the idea there is that uh, it's very important for you to kind of try to confront the material, make your best guess, and, um, and, then, and then discuss it with a neighbor. And I think that this, this is actually one of, the, uh, one of the fun aspects of the course. Um, at least, I think so. Okay? Um, and I'll say also that uh, th this basic technique is uh, the result of there's a whole field of education research, and there are very, very uh, consistent and strong signals in this, suggesting that this sort of flipped classroom, active learning uh, style actually is good for, um, for learning. Right? So I'm not just doing this. It is more fun, but that's not actually why I'm doing it. I'm doing it because um, the people who have spent their lives studying this topic have concluded that this is the best way to teach. All right. Any any questions about the, these pre-class the pre-class questions or my notion of active learning or? All right. <clears throat> okay. Uh, you can mark your calendars uh, in advance. We do have a final. It has not been scheduled yet. It'll be sometime the week of December fifteenth to nineteenth. All right. So for those of you who are um, looking on uh, online for plane tickets back home, all right after December 19th. Okay. Or if you'd like, you can wait a couple weeks, and then the uh, final will be scheduled. Okay. Um, all right, we, uh, we have two required textbooks for the class. Uh, the first is An Introduction to Systems Biology uh, by Uri Alon. I think it's a wonderfully clear, kind of exciting introduction to the topic. Um, the flip side of being wonderfully clear is that it's a little, I mean, that you could complain that it's too simple. right? Um, and, uh, what that means is that we will be supplementing the, uh, the book in a variety of ways, uh, both uh, with uh, separate notes and also by um, extensive uh, reading of papers from the primary literature. Okay. Uh, the second uh, half or third of the class will be uh, reading some chapters from uh, Evolutionary Dynamics, a, bo a book by Martin Novak. Again, a very nice, I think, clear, exciting uh, introduction to, to that field. All right, so uh, I think that these are both books that, if you're at all interested in this area, then you, know, you should own, uh, anyways. Okay. There are um, there are two other books that I think you might want to recommend buying. All right. So first, there's Essential Cell Biology, which is kind of like the uh, the easy version of uh, the Cell, also by Alberts. All right. So be careful of just buying a book by Alberts. All right. So I'd say uh, the Cell is everything you know, everything you ever wanted to know about the Cell, and more than you want to know about the Cell. Whereas Essential Cell Biology is is really just a wonderful book. All right. Um, we um, we read this in my in my uh, lab as kind of a summer book reading project, where each, um, each week we, uh, we read a chapter, and we got together over lunch, and we just went around the table, and we went through all the questions in the book, really. Uh, and we just alternated, and we discussed. And it was really, it's, really, it's, it's wonderful. I, it, it focuses on, on the ideas. Um, you, have to, you, know, you have to memorize a few things. Right? But you know, every now and then, you, you need to memorize something in order to keep track of what's going on. Right? But I, I would say that if, you, if you're really interested in, uh, in biology uh, in any serious way, then I, I would recommend you buy this book. Okay? Uh, and, then, and then finally, there's a book, this book, Nonlinear Dynamics and Chaos by Steven Strogatz, uh, which is uh, a beautiful introduction to nonlinear dynamics. Uh, if, you, uh, if you have not seen the book, I encourage you uh, that you check it out. And in particular, uh, the, some of the topics on uh, stability analysis and oscillations, uh, bifurcations, and so forth, uh, this is a really uh, a great way to learn about them. Okay. 
right, I want to just give a, a brief plug for there's, um, there's another class that some of you, especially the first year students interested in biophysics, might be interested in. This is uh, 8590J slash 20.416J slash 7 something. All right, so it's, um, it's a class targeted for first year uh, graduate students interested in biophysics. Basically, each week we, uh, we read a paper. We have a different guest uh, lecturer come from across campus, either physics, chemistry, biology, biological engineering, civil environmental engineering. Um, so a great way to just meet different faculty who are working at the interface of uh, physics and biology in one, uh, one manifestation or another. Uh, the class uh, is going to be this Friday from 3 to 5, but then uh, in later weeks is going to be uh, 4 to 6 because, we, uh, because it conflicted with something. All right. So um, yes. OK, so um, all right. So, um, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to give you kind of the overview of the, of the, of the rest of the semester in terms of, of the science, but I just want to first remind all of you that, um, that starting on Tuesday you know, is going to be kind of like the real class. Okay, what that means in particular is that we expect you to have done some reading, and we expect you to uh, have submitted your uh, pre-class reading questions by Monday night at 10 p.m. Uh, we used to have it at midnight, but then Andrew has to stay up really late to go over all your responses and send out them. Okay, so so uh, so 10 o'clock, and um, and then and then we'll we'll get going on um, simple uh, kind of interactions between um, between enzyme and substrate, some simple gene expression ideas, and so forth. Okay. All right, so I, I'd say that the the course maybe has three parts. There's kind of like the first half is part one. And then the um, part two is the, I don't know, whatever, the three quarter, you know, half to three quarters mark. And then uh, the last part is, uh, is maybe four or five lectures. Right? And, uh, and the structure of this is, is really, um, it is kind of going, I'd say, from uh, the microscopic scale and then uh, in terms of just the basic ideas of you know, what happens if molecule A binds to molecule B? What, can, you know, what are the features that we should be aware of? Okay, so pretty, you know, pretty basic there all the way up to questions in ecology. The last lecture is going to be uh, questions about uh, the origin of diversity in, uh, in ecosystems. Okay? And, uh, and so we'll, we'll basically march from the molecular scale up to the population scale throughout the semester. It's, um, for those of you who are interested in thinking about these questions of, of how, to organize, uh, how, how to organize a class, there, there's, uh, there's, there's quite an interesting discussion at the beginning of uh, Bill Bialik's uh, biological physics book where um, he very explicitly says that he, he tried to resist the temptation to do what it is that we do in our class, right? He, I, he, he resists the temptation to, uh, to start from the small scale and then build up to these larger scales. Um, and, and, and the reason he says he, he wants to avoid that is because he does not want to give students the impression that we actually understand how you go from the, that, the lower scales up to the higher scales, right? Um, and I think that that's a totally reasonable viewpoint. Okay? But that being said, the whole point of this endeavor is to try to say something about it. We may not really understand it all, but you know, we have to try. And, and, and it's certainly true that that is how function arises, right? that there are lower level interactions that lead to higher scale functions, dynamics, behaviors. Right? We may not be able to predict exactly what's going on there, but uh, that is the way that nature does it. So um, you know, I don't want to second guess nature, certainly. Okay, uh, so that's going to be our approach. But, um, but if you, you know, at the end of the class you, you prefer a different order, you can always just turn yourself around and then it'll all jumble up in your brain and then it can be whatever order you like. All right. Um, okay, so, so on Tuesday we're really going to start with the most basic ideas. All right, well, what happens if you have, for example, one gene that is going to turn on another gene, right? So you might have a transcription factor X. It's going to activate some uh, gene Y in the sense it's going to cause gene Y to be expressed, right? Now, it's as simple as you, as you can get, but what, what are the general features that you can say about this sort of process? Right. Well, you can say, well, there's one thing is that, all right, x could either be an activator of y, or maybe it's a repressor of y. All right. So these are the two symbols that we'll often use. An arrow will you know, either be an act, well, this symbol will always be a repressor. A plain arrow may be ambiguous, so beware. All right. Now, the question is, well, what, what happens here? For example, you might have this uh, transcription factor, let's say TED-R, that's repressing expression of this gene that is encoding uh, GFP, all right, green fluorescent protein. It's, you're going to see this many, many times over the course of the semester. In some ways, one of the things we're going to see in the class is that new ideas often arise from new techniques or new capabilities. Right? 
Now, it was really, I think, uh, the, why, uh, the spread of, of GFP and related proteins that allowed us to visualize gene expression in individual cells. And it led to this real flowering of uh, new, new ideas of how, for example, stochasticity may be relevant, cell-to-cell -cell heterogeneity. Right? These are all, I think, very interesting ideas. But in order for them to be kind of concrete, you need data. Right? And this was a powerful way for us to get data that was relevant for these, uh, these sorts of big questions. So the idea here is that if this uh, protein is, is made, it's expressed, then that cell will become fluorescent. In particular, it will become green if you shine the proper light on it. Okay? All right, and then we can do things. We can ask questions about, for example, the dynamics of this process. Okay, uh, okay so here we have a case where uh, now this is a repressor that is uh, that's going to, you know, the, if you have this repressor, then it stops expression of that, of that fluorescent protein. Right? Now you can ask, well, what happens if you start in a situation where the cell is repressing expression of that gene? Okay? So in this case, the protein concentration is 0. Right? So the cell is not fluorescent. But then you, you add something so that now you cause that repressor to fall off and stop repressing that gene. All right? Now the question is, well, how long does it take for the protein concentration to grow to some equilibrium. Right? So it starts out at 0. Eventually, it's going to reach some steady state. Right? So what is it that sets this time scale? Right? What's the characteristic time that it takes for uh, the cell to respond to this signal? What we're going to find is that there's a very general sense in which that characteristic time scale is really the cell generation time. Okay? So cells divide at some rate that depends on the kind of cell, the environment, and so forth. Right? Does anybody have a sense for a bacterial cell in you know, nice, rich media, good temperature, like how long it takes for it to divide? Yeah, 20 minutes is you know, how you know, so E. coli, for example, can divide every 20 minutes if you put it in the right environment, which is really an amazing thing if you think about the number of different proteins that have to be made and the complicated mechanics of growing and separating and so forth. Right? But every 20 minutes, that such a cell can divide. That's saying that. A bacterial cell, when it, when it sees a new signal, it's going to take of order that amount of time in order for it to do anything. And that's just because of this natural process that, uh, of dilution. Right? So as the cell grows, there's a dilution of the contents. Right? So it makes sense that if you start out with the protein and you stop making it, then you know, right, maybe you'll get an exponential decay of that concentration with this time scale of cell generation time. But what's interesting is that in some ways that result is more general, that even if you're trying to turn something on, there's the same limit, this cell generation time that is, is placing some limit to how fast the cell can respond to new information. If it, if it uses this mode of information transmission where you express a new gene. Okay? All right, so if you want to go faster, then you have to do something else. Maybe. Right. All right, so in some cases, you can actually have a situation where a protein is actually regulating itself. Right? So for example, this is an example of what you might call negative autoregulation. Right? So in this case, that protein actually comes back and it represses its own expression. Right? It's found that this is actually rather common in biology. Right? So of course, if you see something that is common in biology, then you know, it's reasonable to ask, oh, maybe there's an evolutionary explanation. Right? Not always, but it's worth, it gives you a hint that maybe it's worth looking. Now, in this case, what we're going to find is that such negative autoregulation does some very interesting things. Right? So for example, one thing that it's been shown to do is to increase the rate of response of that, um, of that gene. So in some ways, you can speed up the response to some signal by having that negative autoregulation. Okay? In a similar way, this negative autoregulation increases uh, what you might call robustness, right? the ability of uh, the function in this case, maybe the concentration of the protein, to be robust to variations in things like the, uh, you know, the temperature or, or this or that, you know, so environmental perturbations, or maybe just stochastic fluctuations. Okay? Now, in, in this field, I'd say one of, the, um, one of the key advances that led to the birth of uh, I'd say both uh, this branch of systems biology, but also the field of what you might call synthetic biology, right? really kind of using engineering principles to try and design new gene circuits, was um, 
a, a pair of important papers that we're going to be talking about in, in this class. So the first of, this, of these was a paper from uh, Jim Collins' group. Um, he, um, he was at BU, although I don't know if you, you may not have heard yet, he's actually uh, just agreed to move over here to MIT. So this is very exciting for us and for hopefully for you. All right. So Jim Collins, um, in 2000, he showed that he could engineer a switch, all right? so something called a toggle switch. Right? So if you have two genes that are mutually repressing each other, then this is a system that is kind of the most basic kind of memory module. Right? Because if you have one gene that's high, it can repress the other one, and that's a stable state. But if this other gene goes high, then it's going to repress this one here, and that's another stable state. Right? And that state, since it's stable, it can maintain memory of the past environment. Right? And he was able to demonstrate, his group, that he could construct such a switch using components that just in the past were never interacting with each other. Right? So this is a taking advantage of this fa fabulous kind of modularity of the components of biology in order to do something that is in principle useful. Okay? And uh, by doing this, it's possible that you could go and engineer new things, but it's also a testbed for you to kind of take this dictum from Feynman that you know, if you can't build it, then you don't understand it. Right? And th you know, this is a nice way to uh, go into the cell and say, all right, well, if it's really true, you know, if all these models that we talk about in systems biology, for example, if they're really true, then we should actually be able to go into the cell, put these components together, and demonstrate that there is, for example, this switch-like behavior. Right? And, uh, and this, was, um, this was a very important paper that kind of demonstrated that, this is, um, that it's possible to do this. Right. The other paper that I think. Did they actually make the switch? Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so they actually yeah, they constructed it. They put it on a pl you know, round circle, circular piece of data like this plasmid, put it into E. coli, and showed that they could, they could do this. Yeah. And, um, and indeed, this, this particular issue of nature, I think, was, was hugely influential for our field because um, that toggle switch paper and this other paper, the repressilator by Michael Elowitz and colleagues, um, they were kind of back to back in that issue of nature. Right? And I'd say, in, in some ways, they were the beginning of um, systems and synthetic biology. Um, of course, you can argue about this, but, uh, but it certainly, um, I think they influenced um, many, many people in getting excited about the field. All right. So the repressilator, this is uh, the idea that uh, you can uh, generate a gene circuit like this that will oscillate. Okay. And in this case, instead of having just uh, two genes that are repressing each other, if instead you have three genes that are repressing each other but in a circular fashion, then there's no stable state akin to what we had with this toggle switch. But instead, what happens is that uh, you get successive uh, kind of waves or whatnot of, of um, each of these components going up and down. Right? So they oscillate um, as they mutually repress each other. And I just want to be clear about what this is. All right, so here, these are E. coli cells where, um, where Elowitz put in this, uh, this plasma, the circular piece of DNA, encoding those three genes that mutually repress each other. And basically, associated with one of those genes, he's again attached uh, one of these fluorescent proteins. Right? So the uh, level of fluorescence of the cell tells you kind of about the state of that gene circuit. Okay? Uh, let's see if we can. Um... All right, so it starts out, there's a single cell you can't really see. It starts dividing, but you can see, okay, oscillate, it gets bright, dim, bright, dim. But you can see that um, there, are, there are a number of, of, number of features you might, you might notice about this movie. All right? So first, okay, it, it, it does oscillate, right? which was huge in the sense that it wasn't obvious that you could actually just put these genes together and generate something that oscillates at all. Right? On the other hand, you'd say, well, it's you know, you know, not such a good oscillator. Right? In particular, for example, this started out as a single cell. All right? Now it's dividing under the microscope on agar, you know, so it's getting some nutrients there. Right? But what you see is that. Are, are these cells all in phase with each other? No, right? So there's kind of patches, bright, dark, right? So the question is, well, what's going on here? And it turns out that uh, this design of an oscillator is perhaps not a very good one. And indeed, one of the things we'll be talking about is how you can maybe uh, use some engineering principles to design better oscillators. Right? So for example, Jeff Hasty at San Diego has done really beautiful work uh, showing that you can make robust, tunable oscillators in cells like this. Okay? Now, this, these oscillations, they, they were not, um, maybe not, maybe not as good as you would like, right? but this actually is an example of how a, a partial failure, right? in the sense that, oh, it's, no, they're not great oscillations, that maybe somehow there's, there's noise that's entering in here that you would not like. Right? This led to the realization that, oh, maybe noise is relevant in decision making within cells. And this 
led, uh, I'll show you in a, um, in a few slides, to uh, another major advance that Elowitz, um, that Elowitz had. Right? So this is, I think, a good example of how um, you know, one, um, what you might call a, a, a partial failure, or you know, some, some reservations about the quality of this oscillator led him to another really uh, big scientific discovery of the importance of, of noise in decision-making within cells. Right, but before we kind of get to this noise, uh, we're going to say uh, something about um, the, the more global structure of, uh, of these gene networks. Right? And in particular, we're going to um, analyze and we're going to read this paper by Barabasi, uh, which, uh, which represents kind of a simple mechanism for how you might get what are called these power law distributions in networks. Right? So if you have these genes that are mutually activating and repressing, what, what can you say about, about the structure of this, of this gene network within the cell? Now, you can analyze such global structure in a couple of different ways. One is just to ask about, oh, you know, how many different genes are different genes connected to? Right? And that's kind of maybe the more Barabasi approach. But then there was a, another major uh, kind of discovery that Uri Alon, the author of our textbook, kind of made, which is that you can ask, in this crazy network that you have that describes the decision making within the cell, are there kind of common patterns or motifs that appear over and over again? So just like this idea of auto-regulation, right, when a gene represses or activates itself, okay, so it, that's something that appears frequently. And so you can ask, well, why might that be? Similarly, if there are other patterns that appear in these networks, then maybe they arose or they were selected for by evolution uh, because they performed some other function. And in particular, we're going to analyze uh, this feed-forward loop motif, where you have some gene X that, activ that activates, for example, another gene Y. Y activates, oh, this, I'm sorry, this is supposed to be Z. Now, if X, again, directly activates or represses Z, this bottom gene, then what does, that, what does that do for you? Because this is something that you see more frequently than you expect based on some notion of, of, of chance or some, some null model. All right? So the question is, why would these feed-forward loops appear over and over again? And it turns out that they can uh, provide some nice, nice functions in the sense that, for example, you can provide some asymmetric response to uh, temporary fluctuations of inputs, et cetera, et cetera. Right? So we'll try to get. Uh, some sense of these ideas. Okay. All right, so as I kind of as I alluded to before in this idea of the repressilator that Michael Elowitz made, all right, so he saw that it was it was surprisingly noisy, and this got him thinking about the role of stochastic fluctuations within cells. And I think that this is um, a common theme throughout much of of systems biology is the role of noise in um, in biology, and this could be within a cell for individual decision making. Right. It could be in the context of development. How is it that you make, you robustly make uh, a body given, given noise? It could be at the level of, of evolution or ecosystems that maybe noise actually plays a dominant role in, for example, determining the abundance or diversity of ecosystems. Right. So we'll see these themes kind of pop up in, on multiple scales throughout the semester. Right. But in this case, what, what Elowitz did, this is just two years after his, his repressilator paper, he showed that if you just take the, in, in a single cell, you give it the exact same instructions. Right? So you say, all right, make a red protein, red fluorescent protein, and make a green fluorescent protein okay? you know, with the exact same instructions to the cell. You can say, well, if you have the same instructions, then the level of the red and the green should kind of do the same thing. Right? But what he found was that actually there was surprising heterogeneity of the level of those two proteins, even in single cells. So the idea is that even so that this, this represents a fundamental limit to what a cell can do, right? Because this is saying you know, that we take we we try to do the exact same thing two different times. If you don't get the same output, then that, that's a real limit to what you can do, right? Because you've done everything you can, right? You said, all right, you know, here's the sequence of that DNA that has the instructions, this promoter sequence. Right? It's exactly the same, yet you still get different outputs. Right? So the question is, what's causing that? And also, how is it that life can actually function given this intrinsic noise that's in the cell. Right? And these are, uh, these are themes that we're going to kind of look at over the course of the semester. Right. And these are actually some, some images that he took uh, all right, in, this, in, this, um, in this paper. And so what you can see is that, um, that some of the cells are really rather red, some are rather, uh, rather yellowish green. And, you know, so, so this is telling us about the level of those proteins in individual cells. All right. So, all right. So now uh, we have some notion. Okay. So somehow noise is important in um, in, in these molecular scale gene expression patterns. Right. Now uh, there, there's what I think is really quite a beautiful paper by Sunny Shee's lab at Harvard uh, in in 2006, where he 
combined uh, single molecule fluorescence with um, live cell imaging in E. coli. And this allowed him to observe kind of uh, individual uh, expression events within individual cells, right? Where every time one of these proteins was expressed, he got a little yellow spot corresponding to this, um, this equivalent of a yellow fluorescent protein, right? And so he was able to kind of watch as real live cells made individual proteins. And from that, he was able to say, I think, some very, uh, very nice things about uh, what it is that's causing noise, uh, such as what we talked about in uh, that repress later or in the other Elowitz paper. Right? And a lot of it just has to do with this idea that if you're talking about low number events, or in particular, low numbers of molecules, right? DNA typically present, only one or a few copies per cell, right? then that means there's some inherent stochasticity. Because that piece of DNA, it's either bound by one of these motors, this RNA polymerase that can make the RNA, or not. Right? And that is intrinsically going to be a stochastic process. Right? And that kind of dynamic can lead to substantial heterogeneity or fluctuations in expression of individual genes. All right, so it's kind of at this stage of the course that we start to think maybe a little bit more about uh, some of the more the global aspects of what it is that a cell is trying to do. Right? And in particular, if, uh, if a cell is trying to, for example, swim to, to get to higher concentrations of food, what, uh, what are the fundamental limitations that that cell faces? You know, how does it know what is uphill, what's downhill? Right? So these are uh, cases in which we have to really understand something about the role of, uh, of diffusion uh, in uh, the ability of these small cells to, um, to move in their environment. Right? For example, here, this is an illustration of uh, the Reynolds number, which is telling you something about um, the relative importance of, uh, of viscous forces versus inertial forces on um, these different organisms. And uh, some of the way, for example, how an organism such as us can swim is just qualitatively different from how a microscopic organism such as E. coli can swim. Right? So we'll kind of uh, try to understand how that plays out. And, um, and in particular, how it is that E. coli can move towards um, higher, uh, higher food sources. And there's a very, um, a very clever way that, that bacteria have that allows them to have really robust functioning of this, what you call a chemotaxis um, process within the cell. And, um, and I think this is a, a neat example of, of kind of the gene networks coupling into a higher, a higher level behavior that allows cells to, to survive in really challenging environments. Okay. Another manifestation, actually, of fluctuations is this idea of pattern formation. Right? And this is um, actually experimental data of um, in vitro. So if you take proteins outside of the cell and you put them on a two-dimensional membrane, right? Now, these are actually the proteins that are responsible um, for finding the center of, of a cell. So I told you that E. coli, for example, it grows in length. And then once it gets kind of long enough, it wants to divide, so it kind of separates in the middle. And the question is, how does it know where's the, where the middle is? Right? It's actually, you know, if you can just stand outside of the cell and look at it, then you, you, know, you, you, know, and you say, oh, I know where it is, and you just cut. Right? But imagine you're a cell. You know, how do you know where the you know, Once you start thinking about all these challenges that cells face, it's really remarkable that they can do anything. And what, what it turns out is that they impl implement, they use the, what are called these min proteins that display uh, what seem to be um, the equivalent of uh, what you might know of as Turing uh, patterns in order to cause these oscillations in the cell that allows it to find where the center of the cell is. All right, so we'll, uh, we'll talk about, about this and how, uh, how these authors were able to visualize these beautiful um, traveling waves of, um, of proteins where they successfully bind to the membrane and then are kind of um, ejected off of it. And this results in, uh, in beautiful patterns that are traveling, as you saw. Okay. All right, okay, so, all right, so this was, um, I'd say that th these topics are, are what you might call traditional systems biology in the sense that, um, that this, these are all things that, um, that the kind of physics branch of systems biology were, have all, you know, thinking about for the first, uh, for the first 10 years. And over the last, uh, or last five years maybe, there's been um, a greater interest in, in trying to understand how these sorts of ideas and principles may be relevant for, for larger scale phenomena. And, and larger in the sense of, um, g instead of thinking maybe about, uh, at, about genes as this fundamental unit and then trying to understand how genes interact to form do this decision making process, maybe instead, if you think about cells as somehow being that fundamental unit, how is it that the cells come together to, uh, to 
lead to interesting kind of population level phenomena. Okay? And, and so we're, we, we talk about both what you might call evolutionary systems biology, right? So how is it that evolution within a population kind of behaves, as well as ecological systems biology? What happens if you have more than one species? And how is it that the, the kinds of ideas that we, uh, that we talked about in the first half of the semester are relevant in these, uh, in these population level phenomena? All right, so in, uh, the first example that we're going to give is actually another paper from Uri Alon's group where uh, he showed that there's a, a very uh, fundamental sense in which cells through the evolutionary process are implementing a cost-benefit analysis. And the question that he asked here is that if you take an E. coli cell and you put it in different concentrations of the sugar lactose, right? now the question is how much of the enzyme responsible for kind of digesting lactose, how much of that enzyme should you make? Right? Well, you say, well, um, you might say, oh, well, you should just make a lot of it. Right? You know, but you say, oh, well, at some point, there's going to be a problem. Right? Because if you make too much of it, then you're going to be spending all of your energies making this enzyme. Right? So there, you know, whereas on the other hand, if you don't make enough, then you're not going to be able to get enough of this sugar. Okay? So th there's, you know, there's, like always, there's this Goldilocks principle. Right? You don't want too little. You don't want too much. And what he showed is that if he evolved these E. coli populations over hundreds of generations in the laboratory, but at different concentrations of this sugar lactose, what he saw is that the concentration or the level of expression of the enzymes required to make that or to, to break down that sugar, it changes over time. Right? So if you have a lot of the sugar, then you want to make a lot of the enzyme. If you have a small amount of that sugar, then you want to make less of the enzyme. Right? So that all makes sense, but this is a case where he could really demonstrate it in the laboratory using uh, these microbial populations. So it's, it's, uh, very uh, kind of beautiful example of how simple ideas of cost-benefit really give you insight into the evolutionary process. Now, I told you before that kind of part of the reason that, uh, that we have to consider the role of fluctuations or noise in, for example, cellular decision-making is because of the low numbers of molecules that are often involved. Right? So if you have a small number of proteins or small numbers of DNA, then the process is intrinsically stochastic. Now, the question naturally arises, well, why is it that we might need to consider stochastic dynamics in the context of evolution? Right? Because if you think about, for example, an E. coli population, even in a small test tube, right, you might have a billion cells there. Right? So you know, a billion is a big number, right? much larger than one. Right? So it's tempting to conclude from that that actually all of this stochastic kind of dynamics, fluctuations, maybe it's just not relevant for evolution. Okay? However, if you think about the evolutionary process, fundamentally, any time that you have a new mutant appear in the population that may be more fit, may be less fit, but every new mutant in the population starts out as a single individual. Right? It's a trivial statement, but it has deep implications because it means that every evolutionary process goes through this regime where you have small number of fluctuations. Okay? Right? So this has very clear implications in many different contexts, and we'll kind of uh, explore it over the course of the semester. And, there's, and despite the fact that, there's, that evolution is intrinsically, you might say, random, what's interesting are perhaps cases where uh, that randomness somehow washes out. Right? For example, we're going to talk about what I think is a beautiful paper by Roy Cashoni's group um, at Harvard Medical School, Medical School uh, who showed that if you, if you take a population, you put it in some new environment, you say, well, there are going to be different mutations. right? And some of them are going to be really good. Some of them are going to be um, not so good. Right? You can imagine that of all of these possible beneficial mutations, they kind of describe some distribution. Right? Whereas if you ask, this is the uh, frequency or the number of mutations as a function of how good that mutation is. And we say, well, it should be some falling function. Right? I mean, because you know, you, it's just not going to be the, as many mutations that are really just amazing as there are that are kind of good. Right? But it's not obvious whether the curve should be kind of this exponential, or maybe it looks like this, or it could look like many different things. Right? What, uh, what Roy's group showed here in this paper is that actually, in some very reasonable situations, it doesn't actually matter what that underlying distribution might be. Because if you look at the distribution of mutations that actually uh, you know, fix or spread in the population, those actually all look kind of the same, in the sense that they're kind of peaked around some value. Right? So there's some sense in which the random process of evolution leads to some patterns that are a priori maybe not so obvious. Right? And on the flip side, what it means is that if you go and you measure 
All right? How good are the mutations that actually appear in the population? That actually that tells you surprisingly little about what that underlying distribution is in terms of the effects of the beneficial mutations. Right? So there's some way in which the details kind of wash out. And I think that this is, this is fascinating because I think a major theme or a major challenge in systems biology is right, we want to understand how these underlying parts lead to some higher level function. But we don't always know which details of the interactions are important for leading to that higher level organization. Right? In some cases, they're very important, but in some cases, not. So a challenge that, you know, that we're going to face kind of over and over again is trying to understand what are the key features that are going to influence the dynamics of this higher level system. Right? And this is, I think, an interesting example of how um, some features of that underlying distribution are important and some are not. All right, so another kind of interesting analogy between uh, kind of evolution and some ideas from physics is this idea of a fitness landscape. Right? So the, just like an energy landscape tells you something about um, uh, the dynamics of, of a system, for example, you say, oh, well, a ball should kind of roll down the hill. Okay? Similarly, if you think about evolution in the context of um, how fit an organism is as a function of some different parameters, you can get what well, might be kind of non-trivial structures. So this is some illustration of, of what's perhaps a non-trivial fitness landscape. Now, the height here is some notion of fitness. Right? So we could imagine this could, be, uh, this could be the ability of a bird to fly. Right? In that case, maybe these two axes could be the length and the width of the wing. Okay? Now, the, the, the shape of this landscape tells you something about how evolution is constrained. Right? Because if the landscape looks like this, then what that's saying is that, well, you have to actually evolve, in this case, maybe a wider wing before you can evolve a longer wing. Right? So this is, if there's structure to the fitness landscape like this, then it tells you something about the path of evolution. Right? Now, in this case, we're thinking about this in the context of, um, of, of phenotypes, right? things that you can just look at the organism and measure. Right? But instead of thinking about this in terms of phenotypes, we could instead think of it in terms of, of genotype. For example, there is um, a beautiful paper that we're going to read um, from Daniel Weinreich, where he, uh, in the context of a gene that encodes an enzyme that breaks down um, antibiotics such as penicillin, right, what he did is he made all possible combinations of five uh, point mutations, so single, um, single mutations in the gene. Right? So he made all 32 combinations of this gene and then measured the shape of the resulting fitness landscape from those, uh, those 32 different um, versions of the gene. And from it, what he found is that there's a very interesting sense in which evolution at the molecular scale is somehow constrained. Okay. All right, so the, the idea there is that there somehow is a rugged fitness landscape that is constraining the path of evolution. All right, so in all these cases that we've been talking about, there's some notion that you can say, all right, this organism has this fitness so long as it has a wing shape that looks like this. right? Now, uh, that is perhaps fine in many cases, but uh, in some cases there are uh, what you might call game interactions between different organisms in a population. What I mean by game interactions is that the fitness of a particular organism may depend upon what other organisms are out there. Right? And in that case, uh, you can't just say that one organism is fit or not, because it just depends on, on uh, what everyone else in the population is doing, or the genotype of the other individuals in the population. Right? So in that case, you really have to apply some ideas from, um, from game theory to try to get insight into the evolutionary process. And we're going to um, talk about some really nice cases where researchers have constructed, for example, a rock, paper, scissors game using different E. coli strains. Uh, and uh, if you stick out till that, lo uh, that long, I'll tell you about uh, a case in lizards where people have demonstrated a rock, paper, scissors interaction in the context of different mating strategies uh, of the male lizards. All right? So um, if that's not an advertisement to stick around for a couple months, um, I don't know what is. Um, all right, so we, there are other cases where people have demonstrated that, um, that microbes interact via kind of cooperative interactions in which it's possible for cheater strategies to arise, spread throughout the population, and cause you know, some harm to the population, maybe even collapse of the population. Right? So this is a case where there's a tension between what's good for the individual and what's good for the group. Right? Now, organisms are able to do a remarkable set of things. Right? So we, we saw cases where, for example, that neutrophil was able to chase the um, Staph aureus, that bacterial cell. 
right? So that's that's amazing, but it, that that's responding to something that is sort of um, sort of an immediate part of the environment, right? So it's you know it's chasing uh, it's chasing a bacterial cell, but you know then you might ask, well, is it possible for cells to learn? And of course, then you have to define what you mean by learning, and there there's been some I think really interesting demonstrations of how it's possible for organisms to learn not at the individual level necessarily, but at the population level via evolution. And in particular, in this, uh, in this very, I think, well-written paper, what they were able to demonstrate is that um, both yeast that have evolved in the context of um, wine fermentation and uh, E. coli that have evolved uh, traveling through, uh, for example, our digestive tracts, there, there are characteristic sequences of events in which things happen. Okay? So the idea is that if, uh, if a bacterial cell is ingested by a mammal, they will typically see one carbon source and then another one, right? So they might see carbon source A and then carbon source B as they travel through the digestive tract. But if that is typically what happens, then what it means is that an organism might have an advantage if when it sees carbon source A, it starts preparing to digest carbon source B, right? So it can actually learn something about typical environmental orderings. But it's not learning at the individual cell level. It's learning over the course of, uh, of evolutionary timescales. Right? Kind of the typical sequence of events. And uh, in this paper, they showed that um, this seems to be the case for both uh, E. coli and, uh, and for yeast in the context of, uh, of fermentation. Right? So I think it's a, really a beautiful example of, of, you know, of different uh, notions of what you might mean by learning. Right? Right, so uh, another um, kind of classic uh, debate within the field of evolutionary biology uh, is this question about, of, of you know, why, why sex? Right? And in particular, uh, there's this classic paradox, which is saying uh, you know, sex is costly. Right? In particular, if you take a bacterial cell, you know, just one cell turns into two cells. Right? And then two can turn into four. And you get very rapid exponential growth of the population. Right? Whereas if you have both males and females, then there's what you might call this twofold cost of sex. Because males are, in some sense, not contributing to that exponential growth rate. Right? If you start with a male-female, they, and they have two kids, and you have another maybe male-female, and then right, you don't get exponential growth. Right? So, and this is a factor of two in the rate of exponential growth. Right? So this is what's in that exponent. Right? So this is a big, big effect. Right? So it's, I think it's a major, major challenge of, to ask, you know, why is it that sex is so common among, um, among what you might call the higher organisms? Right? One, uh, one of the, um, and there are many hypotheses. We'll talk about some of them. One of the leading ones is known as the Red Queen hypothesis from uh, this Lewis Carroll uh, story where um, it, there's this line, you know, the Red Queen has to run faster and faster in order to keep still where she is. Uh, that is exactly what you all are doing. Right? And the reason that it's called the Red Queen hypothesis is because there's, it, it's, it's arguing that perhaps the reason that we and other uh, animals uh, have uh, obligate sexual reproduction is because of some arms race with, with parasites, that the, um, that the sexual reproduction allows us to evolve more rapidly against the, um, the always adapting uh, parasite populations. Right. And of course, you know, we'll have to talk about exactly what this means. But there's, uh, there have been some interesting uh, experiments in, uh, in worms in which they had different uh, reproductive, different sexual strategies um, in the presence or absence of, of parasites and showed that, that, um, that there are some interesting cases where, where the, uh, this may be at least a big part of, or part of what's going on. Okay. All right, so uh, at this stage, we've, uh, we've been talking first about decision making within cells. And then how, uh, how evolution may allow cells to anticipate different environmental changes, may be able to um, play games against other strategies. All right. But at the end, we're just going to talk some about um, you know, interspecies interactions and uh, what these sorts of ideas may be able to say about, about that process. All right. So for example, a classic interspecies interaction are uh, predator-prey interactions. And uh, this, is, um, this has been used to explain, for example, why it is that many natural populations oscillate over time, right? You know, there are simple models of a predator and prey that uh, that lead to such oscillations. And just over the last ten years, there have been uh, some really fascinating experiments where, in the laboratory, they were able to take predator or prey, show that they oscillate. But then, in this case, they saw some features that they weren't expecting, right? The oscillations were maybe much longer than they were anticipating. And instead of oscillating 90 degrees out of phase, which is what you expect from standard predator prey models, instead they were oscillating 180 degrees out of phase. And I think that this is a good example of how uh, quantitative experiments in the laboratory can actually say something about, I mean, the classic models of predator prey oscillations, they're you know, over 100 years old. Right? But if you go and you make quantitative measurements in the lab, and you see, oh, well, actually, 
in many cases, things are different. Right? And then you can ask why. In this case, they went, they did modeling, and they said, oh, well, maybe it's because of evolution within the prey population. Right? And once they were able to, they hypothesized that from modeling, and then they went and they did experiments where they uh, prevented that evolution, or they prevented, uh, they, they reduced the heterogeneity in the prey population, and then they were able to show that those two features disappeared. Right? So I think it's a really a beautiful example of um, the interplay that we always hope for, which is uh, that you do theoretically motivated experiments and ex experimentally motivated theory computation. Ideally, you go back and forth, and together you can really learn more than you would ever be able to do just by doing one or the other. Okay. Right, we're also going to uh, try to say something about the dynamics of populations uh, in space. Right, so just like uh, these spatial patterns that we talked about um, before in the context of maybe gene networks, there are also dynamics of populations in space. For example, when populations expand into new territory, what does that mean about the evolutionary process? Right, once again, some uh, very nice uh, experiments have been done over the last decade to try to illuminate uh, this process. And in particular, one of the things uh, that was found is that uh, this process of genetic drift, right, the role of randomness in the evolutionary process, is somehow strongly enhanced in many of these, uh, many of these expanding populations. Right? Because somehow you know, the effective population size that quantifies maybe the strength of noise is somehow enhanced because it's not the entire population that matters. It's just the population at the front of this expanding population that is somehow relevant. Right? So we'll kind of explore how, the, how these ideas play out. Right, so towards the end of the class, we'll uh, try to think about some really kind of some real ecological phenomena. In particular, um, we're going to have uh, one lecture where we talk about uh, tipping points in populations. It's a theme that uh, my group, for example, has been very excited about recently. Right, so this here um, is data from the Newfoundland cod fishery. And it's an example of how many natural populations can actually collapse uh, suddenly and catastrophically in response to deteriorating environmental conditions. Okay. Now, what, what's uh, plotted here is this is essentially the number of fish that are caught as a function of time. And uh, you may not be able to read this, but over on the left, this is 1850. And this is kind of the modern, uh, modern day. All right, so this was a very productive fishery for, uh, for hundreds of years, and actually even for hundreds of years before this. Right? However, uh, in the 60s and 70s, uh, improved fishing technology led to a dramatic increase in the number of fish that were caught here. And that increase in fishing led, in the early 90s, to kind of a catastrophic collapse of that, uh, of that population. Right? Similar things have occurred, for example, in the, um, in the sardine fishery off the coast of Monterey and, um, and many, other, uh, many other populations. Right? So the question here is, uh, you know, how can we understand these, um, these sorts of uh, tipping points in populations? Right? And this is a case where um, some of the ideas that we studied early in the semester, right, so these cases of interactions, can lead to sudden transitions. Right? And for example, this uh, early example of a toggle switch that we talked about at the beginning, right? So this case where if you have interactions within the population, it can lead to alternative states, right? And it's the same basic dynamic here, that if you have interactions within the population, then you can get alternative states, maybe healthy and dead or extinct locally, right? So that you can imagine if you have these alternative states due to interactions within the population, then if you start out a lot, you know, in this healthy state and you start pushing it, then it's going to maybe the, the feedback loops there will maintain the state where, the, where it's alive, you know, healthy, da, da, da. But then all of a sudden, when it's not able to counteract this deteriorating environment, all of a sudden it's going to switch and maybe collapse uh, you know, in, this, in, this, in this fishery. And uh, so these sorts of ideas uh, have been used to uh, both try to understand why it is that populations might experience tipping points, but also maybe to get some guidance about ways that we can anticipate that these tipping points are approaching. And uh, for example, in my group, we've been uh, excited about this idea that um, that there are predictions that the fluctuations of the population should be different when a population is a approaching one of these tipping points. And at least in the laboratory, we were actually able to measure a change in the fluctuations before a collapse. And this is saying that, uh, that in principle, uh, there are maybe universal signatures of populations and other complex systems before one of these tipping points. All right. Now, in the, um, in the last lecture, uh, we're going to uh, go kind of maybe to the largest scale to think about uh, really whole ecosystems. And this is, uh, by its nature, uh, I'd say less experimental than uh, the rest of, of the semester. And that, uh, in this case, we're trying to understand questions like, you know, what is it that determines uh, the abundance of different tree species on Barro, Colorado Island? Right. So it's an island in Panama where they go and they they just count every tree within some region. They say, all right, this is this kind of tree, this is that kind of tree. They count thousands and thousands of trees. Right. The question there is, well, you know, some species are more common than others. Right? And 
you know, and, and we want to know why. Right? It's, it seems like a simple question. And the way that we normally think about this is that, the, you know, that it's more common and maybe it's because it's better adapted to that environment. Right? And I think that often that's the right answer. But there's been an interesting movement within ecology recently where it's been pointed out that many of the patterns that people have observed in terms of the, this relative species abundance, how abundant some species are as compared to others, that many of those patterns can actually be explained by a purely neutral model, i.e., this is a model in which you assume that all of the species are the same. Right? So this tree is just the same as that tree in terms of no tree is better than any other tree. But just because of the stochastic dynamics, random birth-death processes, you can recover patterns that look an awful lot like the patterns that are observed uh, in nature. Right? So uh, you can interpret this as in multiple ways. Right? But of course, one way to, that we should always be thinking about the, these things is that if you, if you, you know, we want to collect quantitative data. You should do that. Right? But there's always a temptation that if you collect quantitative data and then you write down a model that is consistent with that data, we often take that as strong evidence that the assumptions of our model are correct. Right? Even though we kind of know that that's not the way we're supposed to do science, somehow it's just really easy to fall into this trap. And I think that uh, this particular example of this neutral theory of ecology is a very concrete example of how different models that make wildly different assumptions about the underlying dynamics they can all look the same once you, you look at a particular kind of pattern. Right? So it's, it's, a, it's a nice kind of cautionary tale saying, you know, what is it that you can learn about the dynamics of a, of a system or of a process based on a particular, um, a particular kind of data set. Right? Uh, and then um, after, um, after this, we will just have that final exam that's going to be that week of 15 to 19, I believe. All right. So, um, so once again, do not book uh, your do not book your tickets before then.